Welcome to the Undisputedly Pauline podcast. I'm Benjamin Naismith, and this is my audio blog. I'm a seminary graduate and also a PhD candidate in mathematics. But this podcast is about my interest in the role of experience in theology and about the Apostle Paul as an exemplar of an experiential Christian faith. In this episode, I share another sermon that I gave at Next Church in Kingston, Ontario. This time I speak about Paul in Galatians chapter 3. I argue that Paul's concern is that we not quench the Spirit, as he writes elsewhere. This gave me a chance toward the end of the sermon to list a number of ways that Christians are tempted to quench the Spirit in their midst today. And listening to this sermon again, I realized it's about as close as I've come to articulating a theological manifesto of some sort for the church today. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, nice to see everybody, and it's uh, exciting to get a chance to share again. So I'll get right into it as well. We are uh, in chapter 3 of Galatians, if you want to take a look in the book in, in the pew in front of you. So I think it's safe to say that uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and especially in chapter 3, we find Paul at his grumpiest. He writes in chapter 3, the beginning, um, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it was really for nothing. Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard. Safe to say that Paul thinks that this ancient community of believers has lost its way, and he's willing to speak plainly about it. And this suggests that, no surprise, it's possible for Christians to lose their way, and it's possible for Christian communities to lose their way. Christian communities can and do lose their way, and it happens all the time. And our problem today is to understand what it looked like to lose the way in ancient Galatia and then imagine what it might look like to lose our own way today. We also have here a famous example of an open conflict between Christians. Uh, Paul is opposing the influence of other Christian leaders on the community in Galatia. And he's up against insiders, not outsiders, even insiders in the form of an angel or an insider like Peter or James. Paul's deeply vexed by something, something important in this letter, and it's so important to him that he's not willing to let it go. For some reason, Paul can't agree to disagree with other Christian leaders. He has to speak about it. So at first glance, it may seem like Paul is vexed by the question of the Jewish law. You'll Maybe didn't pick that up from the verses we read, but if you read more in Galatians, it's everywhere. Um, and the role that uh, the Jewish law should play in the lives of non-Jewish Christians. And that's certainly the context for this letter. But I'm convinced that there's something deeper going on in the letter, uh, something that actually hits us closer to home today than the question of, of the law. 
And if I could choose one sentence from Paul to summarize the entire letter to the Galatians, I'd choose his sentence from 1 Thessalonians where he writes, Do not quench the Spirit. That's what I think the theme of the book of Galatians is. Okay, so let's begin by taking stock of Paul's posture towards the Jewish law. There's no escaping the fact that in Galatians, Paul marginalizes the law in a bold way. And if that doesn't bother you, it helps to think um, of the fact that Paul's actually marginalizing his own scriptures, the only scripture he has available to him at the time. Uh, what we call the Old Testament, and other people, um, especially in the modern Judaism, call the Hebrew Bible, Paul called the Law and the Prophets. It was the only Bible he had, and he's going to criticize it without holding much back. So because Paul's writing is in our Bible, it's easy to think that Paul would be a big supporter of the authority of Scripture and of biblical living and making sure that our Christianity is biblical in some sense. But in Galatians, we just have to look at how he treats the Scriptures that he actually has. Um, So in Paul's day, many people thought that the law was given to Moses by God indirectly through the mediation of angels. And you won't find this idea in the Old Testament if you go and take a look. At least I don't think you will. Uh, But it was in the air, and Paul makes use of it. He repeats this idea, and he says uh, that the law was ordained through angels by a mediator, namely Moses. This is in 3, 19 to 20. And then he says, um, now a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. So in other words, Paul tells us that it was necessary for Moses to mediate the law to Israel um, because he was receiving it from multiple angels. If he had received, if, if Israel had received the law directly from God, there wouldn't have been a need for a mediator. Moses would have been unnecessary. So make what you will of this. It's a sort of a detail that I'm not too worried about you buying into in your own daily life. <laughs> but what it is, is it strong evidence that Paul's putting the law under strict limits without dismissing it. And the author of Hebrews does something similar, but in a gentler way. Uh, if you read Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many ways, in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. Paul also undercuts the law uh, by putting some strict time limits on it. So on one side, he appeals to Abraham at great length. Abraham is a patriarch uh, of impeccable stature who walks with God before the law exists. Paul makes Abraham and not Moses um, the archetype of faith. And he spends two chapters, starting with the one we're talking about right now, trying to explain this idea about why we should look to Abraham, not Moses. Um, Abraham received the promises of God before there was any law, and he receives it by faith. So what that means is that there is once a way, a mode of being in relation to God without the help of the law. And without the help of any of the angel powers behind the law that that Paul already introduced, weirdly enough. On the other end, uh, Paul bounds the law by insisting that it's actually undermined by the death of Christ, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is a contrast to other biblical writers. So if we go back to Hebrews again, um, in Hebrews, that author, which is not Paul, 
they insist that the kingdom of heaven is going to be written upon the hearts of the people of God, which is a little bit more conciliatory. Uh, in Hebrews 8, 12, or 10 to 12, that author quotes and comments on Jeremiah 31. Uh, and he says, where it says, I will write my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So this is a big difference in tone from um, a knowledge of God mediated by angel powers through a written law. In Hebrews, the law is finally going to come home by ending up in the hearts of the people of God. But for Paul in, in Galatians, uh, the law is actually undone by the death of Jesus. He says that the law can only curse, not bless. And it's a curse upon anyone who fails to obey it. He writes uh, 3.10, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But the law also curses Jesus Christ himself. Because it says, I'm in 3.14 now, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if I understand Paul's logic correctly in Galatians, and uses different logic in other places. Um, if I understand his logic correctly, this cursing of Christ is the undoing of the law that curses him. As Paul writes something along these lines in Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, he says, But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And here's the key phrase. None of the rulers of this age, a.k.a. the angel powers, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So since Jesus comes under the curse of the law because he is crucified, and cursed is everybody who's hung up on a tree, um, the law and any powers behind it are undone. To worship the crucified one is to part ways with the law that calls the crucified one cursed by God. So in Paul's worldview, which I'm not necessarily endorsing, like we have to, worldviews are, are complicated and intimate and not easily photocopied. Um, but in Paul's worldview, Christ defeats the powers of the world, including the angel powers behind the law, um, who serve at God's pleasure by scorning the shame of the cross. And part of that shame came from the law. The law and the powers behind it which claim to speak for God, have abdicated their authority in the act of cursing God's chosen one. Okay, so hopefully that makes us all feel a bit uncomfortable because that's exactly what a polemic like Galatians, and Galatians chapter 3 in particular, is meant to do. Paul is provoking his readers, by and us I guess, because we're listening in, he provokes us by attacking something that we might consider sacred. Um, and that doesn't mean that he doesn't mean it, that he's not genuine, but it does mean that there's a big chance for misunderstanding. That's what polemics do. But when the stakes are high enough, someone like Paul is willing to take the risk of being misunderstood because he wants to, um, he wants to accomplish something through this polemic. So a few verses later, he expects that we misunderstand. <laughs> he writes, uh, I'm in verse 321 now. He writes, Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. Paul does this all the time where you, he says something and you think, oh, well that means. And then he, 
immediately says that it doesn't mean that. <laughs> and then you're just sort of back to the beginning, I guess. Yeah. And he doesn't always explain what the certainly not means. This happens in Romans a couple of times, too. Anyway, so in Paul's worldview, the law, even a law that's mediated by defeated angel powers, it's part of God's plan. It's not a mistake or an obstacle. So things are going to get more complicated. Um, sorry. In Romans, he writes paradoxically, this is 2.13 in Romans, he writes, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. This is a very surprising thing to say, given what he's been saying in Galatians. Um, it almost undercuts the whole polemic. Let's keep reading in Romans. He says, when the nations who do not possess the law, do instinctively what the law requires. These, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show what the law requires. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, um, to which their own conscience also bears witness. So there's a sense in which the law reveals the will of God to a person. But the law does not constrain or contain or exclusively mediate that will. There's other ways to encounter God's will in experience. And what matters most is the conscience, what we've heard described as the law written upon the heart, like the one described in Hebrews, and like, like Paul described here. Um, it doesn't matter that people outside of the nation of ancient Israel lacked access to a written law. Uh, that's not a obstacle or a definitive obstacle to them knowing or perceiving the will of God. At the end of Galatians, Paul writes, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now we should all be super confused. So how does this fit with what we've heard so far? When Christ defeats the angel powers through the cross and their authority over humans through the law, does Christ defeat his own command to love your neighbor. That doesn't make sense. So I hope we're all confused a little bit and we're wondering, what's going on with Paul's hot then cold posture towards the law of his own people? And I, here's what I suggest is the answer. I think that the answer is this. A good thing can become bad for a person depending on their posture toward it. I think that's the answer. Paul develops a kind of Christian relativism twice in his writings that I know of. Uh, one of them is in Romans 14 to 15, and another one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10. So we're talking about five chapters worth of material, roughly, to try to explain this concept. I'll try to explain it quicker. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering some questions about whether or not it's appropriate for the people in Corinth to eat meat uh, sold in the market that was previously offered to idols as part of the religious life of the city. Now, Paul can eat that meat with a clean conscience, uh, if it were only his conscience at stake. He doesn't actually care that it was prepared for idol worship and then sold in the market, probably at a discount. That doesn't bother him. What bothers him, uh, well, as far as he's concerned, the idols in these temples to whom this meat has been offered are of no account because he says in uh, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, for us there's one God the Father 
from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So idol meat is a matter of indifference to Paul. He's not for it, and he's also not against it. However, there's other people in Corinth and in Rome, I guess, but mostly in Corinth, who recently worshipped in these temples, and for them, idol meat means something different. Um, if they were to partake, it would mean returning to their old gods. The principle here is captured in Romans, uh, where Paul writes, I know you guys can't keep up with um, my constant page flipping here. I keep on wanting to tell you the reference anyway. <laughs> Romans 14, 13. Um, he writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So this is kind of, this is remarkable. What I take him to say is that uh, the subjective is just as real as the objective in matters of conscience. A good thing can become bad depending on a person's posture towards it, or rather toward God concerning it. All things are lawful, the Corinthians write to Paul, and his reply is not all things are beneficial, not all things build up. When we use a good thing in a way that uh, goes against our conscience, we damage our posture towards God and we quench the spirit. And I think this makes sense of Paul's concern about the way the law is being used in Galatia um, and alongside the fact that he's definitely willing to give the law a larger and limited role in the theology he describes in Romans. This is because for the Galatians, the law has become a stumbling block. The law is the idle meat to the Galatians, just like the idle meat was the idle meat to the Corinthians. When the Galatians became convinced by rival Christian leaders that their experience of the Spirit of God lacked something, and that thing was the proper submission to the law of the Jewish people, they began to quench the Spirit in their midst. And something that wasn't actually objectively dangerous um, the Bible of Paul's day, <laughs> the law, it became subjectively dangerous to the Galatians. It became to the, dangerous to the non-Jewish Christians in Galatia because of their posture towards it and their posture towards God relative to it. If non-Jewish Christians in Galatia were to agree with Paul's rivals and attempt as non-Jewish people um, to conform to the way of life of Jewish Christians, basically to pretend to be Jewish. Um, I told myself I wouldn't like go off script. But we have a sense that it's not appropriate to pretend to be someone that you're not today. Okay. Okay, if they were to attempt to uh, conform to these customs that don't belong to them, they would be ignoring the fact that the Spirit of God was present amongst them before they even considered picking up the Jewish law and following it. Uh, God poured out the Spirit of Jesus upon this community in Galatia long before they even considered submitting 
before they ever considered submitting to Jewish customs and norms. And so for Paul, it's completely appropriate and understandable for Jewish people upon whom the Spirit has fallen to continue to be Jewish and to continue with their customs and norms. Um, in Acts, Paul gets arrested and spends like three years in prison, and then he's in Rome, and we're not sure if he died shortly after that. Why did he get arrested? It's because he was at the temple trying to demonstrate that he was not against the law <laughs> and Jewish traditions. That's why he got arrested. Um, he was trying to reassure the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that he wasn't against them being Jewish and them following their law as Christians. But not everything that's traditional is sacred for Paul. In Galatians, we've already seen that he um, insists that anyone who shares the spirit of Jesus must be free to eat together, regardless of whatever the tradition says. In contrast, Paul finds it completely inappropriate when non-Jewish Christians or non-Jewish people upon whom the Spirit has fallen seek the, they try to seek the approval of Jewish Christians by mimicking their law keeping. The Spirit of Jesus was given without any regard to whether or not a person uh, obeys the Jewish law. And that has to mean something. In Acts, going back to Acts again, the Spirit falls upon the household of um, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And that fact alone is enough to convince Peter that the gospel is not just for the people of Israel, but for all the nations. In Galatians, when the Spirit falls upon people who have never considered obeying the Jewish law, that means for Paul that the law is not eternal and sacred. However appropriate, it remains for for Jewish Christians. The Spirit is no respecter of law-keeping. The Spirit doesn't check whether you're a law-keeper before residing in you and empowering you. It ignores that distinction. So for Jewish Christians in Galatia to seek the approval... Sorry, I got this backwards. For non-Jewish Christians in Galatia to seek the approval of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem by keeping foreign traditions is to ignore this incongruous gift of the Spirit, this gift that ignores the law-keeping, non-law-keeping distinction, is to regard themselves as second-class Christians and to quench the Spirit. Like, does this happen today? Something like this happen today anywhere? Like, this, this idea of trying to impress other Christians, it's not hard to uh, look too far and find it. Okay, so I suspect that very few of us are tempted to think that we're not real Christians because we don't observe all the traditions and laws of ancient Judaism that we find in what has become to be called our Old Testament. I could be wrong, but I don't think that we're really too worried about that. Um, We know where to begin to love your neighbor, but, but where does it end? And I just, let's just flip this around. That living biblically is a very slippery slope, if you think about it. (laughs) So, I'm convinced that even so, we're still facing the same threat that Paul addresses, and it's not the threat of the law. Um, 
It's the threat of quenching the spirit. We're constantly tempted to quench the spirit. Usually this temptation comes by way of taking some gift of God and deciding that it's got to be normative or normal or necessary for all Christians. And it's really easy to come up with examples, so I have. Um, and I've I've made like all of these mistakes. So Okay, so let's let's go through these and then I'll be done. Um Suppose that you are uh, healthy and you're thankful to God for your good health. So what do you make of people who are sick? Do you look at those who are sick as people who lack the Lord's favor? Um, could it be instead that those who have experienced physical hardship might have received, received some kind of strength and encouragement from the Spirit that the healthy among us have yet to encounter? Okay, suppose instead that you are wealthy or more modestly, just thankful that God is meeting your needs. What do you make of people who lack resources, uh, opportunities, and connections? Do they lack the Lord's favor? Um, Or could it be that the spirit of the one who said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Could it be that this spirit is with those in need as well? Okay, suppose that you're married or you belong to a nuclear family that many would describe as traditional. What do we make um, of those for whom family is a disappointment and marriage is a hardship? Could it be that the spirit of the one who declared, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother and sister and mother. Is that spirit present amongst those for whom family is a stumbling block and a hardship? Jesus didn't have um, a good family situation. They were an obstacle and not a help. What do you make of those who have healthy and loving relationships and marriages that look much different from your own? Is not the spirit of Jesus present wherever two or three are gathered in his name? Even if it looks different than you might expect or feel comfortable with. Okay, I'm going to get a bit more snarky before I'm done here. <laughs> Suppose that um, you're thankful for the church, taken very broadly, and you're thankful for the progress of Christianity over the past two millennia. Maybe you take comfort in the fact that your faith is a global religion, maybe even the dominant one in the society in which you're raised. Maybe you enjoy listening to Christian music, and you give thanks to the Lord for the local Christian bookstore and your favorite megachurch podcast. Maybe you're yearning for the day when a Christian worldview would regain some kind of dominance again and plausibility, so you don't have to be embarrassed about what you just happen to believe. Could it be that the spirit of the one who said, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Could it be that this spirit is also among those who are working against the influence of the church as an organization, working against its legions of ministries and networks of power aggregation? 
Okay, last of all, suppose that you're thankful for the Bible. As many were thankful for the law. Maybe you take the Bible to be the very word of God to us. And you join in the worship of the saints throughout the ages. As you read uh, what the Lord has done in salvation history. And maybe this is a grand narrative to which you now belong. What comfort it is to know that God could be known just by reading. Amazing. Not that reading is easy, but the book is different from the other books you've read. Uh, Maybe the importance of the topic, the fact that we're talking about eternal life and salvation, makes it uh, all the more critical that we read. Maybe this book is so special that it might answer all sorts of questions. Maybe it'll answer any question that I ask it. If we, oh yeah, we have to pay attention to context and pray carefully and make sure we got the right worldview. Otherwise it won't work. Um, maybe taking the Bible seriously, more seriously than other Christians, is the distinctive feature of your spiritual life. Maybe your confidence in your own interpretation of this book is only proportional to your zeal for searching the scriptures. So could it be that the spirit of the one who said, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify on my behalf. Could it be that this spirit is also with those who interpret the Bible in different ways and who use it for different purposes and who apply to it different standards? Maybe the spirit of Jesus is also with those for whom the Bible looks different possible. Maybe you notice that this last one bothers me a little bit more than it should. Um, I was taught, not by my mom, but like by the churches I grew up in. (laughs) I was taught that the um, Holy Spirit would never contradict the Bible, but that is not true. Um, The Spirit of Jesus does not defer to the experts in the law doesn't defer to the experts on the Bible either. If anything, uh, the Spirit of Jesus interprets us as we interpret the Bible. As we read or hear, we're provoked to interpret our world and our scriptures with the same kind of audacity that Jesus and Paul interpreted theirs. And that wasn't with like a lame duck deference. We interpret both by the power of the Spirit. And it's more true to say, as Paul does, that we're known by God than that we know biblical facts about God, even when we do. Um, So we must not, as many do and always have done, uh, use the Bible to quench the Spirit. It happens. Okay, I'm almost done. I've got one paragraph left. Um, if we're going to let the Spirit of Jesus be our guide, we need to test the voices that we encounter in the world, in our world, and honestly, even in our Bible, against the character of Jesus of Nazareth. No voice is safe or trustworthy. Not even that megachurch podcast. Um, not even an angel from heaven. Not even Paul. Unless it yields to the authority and character of the spirit of the crucified and risen Jesus. 
And no one who is led by the Spirit is to be rejected, no matter how strange it seems that the Spirit of Jesus is also present with them. Maybe looking at that the other way around is more useful. Is it don't count yourself out just because other Christians are judging you. In spite of um in spite of our reservations, we need to recognize the same power at work in others that we find at work in ourselves. And that's the same power made manifest in the persons and action of Jesus. And the last thing I want to say then to summarize is this, that the gift of God in Christ is a gift of power to act in this world in the interests of the spirit of Jesus. And we must not quench this spirit. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and found something encouraging or challenging to dwell on. I'd love to hear back from you. Please leave me an audio message. Just go to the podcast website, anchor.fm slash ben-naismith, and click message. I might even include your voice in a future episode. Until then, let's imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Christ.